0: Welcome to Rise to Offend, a program that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'll be your host, Brandon Hahn, and this week we'll be wrapping up our in-depth look into Charles Bukowski. Generally speaking, you're free till you're about
1: four years old. And then, uh, 5 arrives, then you go to grammar school and then you start becoming demented and solved and orientated and shoved into areas you lose what individualism you have if you have enough of course you retain some of it but most don't have enough so you become watchers of game shows you know and things like that then you work the 8 hour job with almost a feeling of goodness
0: like you're doing something a German-American poet, novelist, and short story writer Charles Bukowski would become a cult hero within the literary community by satirizing the machismo attitude through his use of sex, alcohol abuse, and misogyny not one to ever back down his words would provide the creative fuel for dozens of screenwriters, performers, and musicians a self-proclaimed societal outcast Charles Bukowski lived his life the same way he wrote Honest Ugly and without a single regret doing some dumb thing
1: over and over and over again. You get caught into the stricture of what you're supposed to be and you have no other choice. You're finally molded and molded into what you're supposed to be. I didn't like this and I didn't like the eight hour job. I didn't even like the four hour job even though I couldn't get one. So I decided... I'd rather starve, live on the edges of nowhere, than do anything at all, than become anything labeled. So for 50 years, I was a scarecrow unlabeled, and now I'm supposed to be a writer.
0: And joining me as always, Peter Speich and Sylvia Alvarado. In 1967, as Bukowski's legend grew in the underground literary world, so did his opportunities. He'd be offered a column in Open City Weekly titled Notes from a Dirty Old Man, which would help pave his way to an even wider audience.
1: This babe in the grandstand with dyed red hair kept leading her breasts against me and talking about Gardena poker parlors. But I blew smoke into her face and told her about a Van Gogh exhibition I'd seen up on the hill, and that night when I took her home, she said Big Red was the best horse she'd ever seen until I
0: stripped down, though I think on the Van Gogh thing they charged 50 cents. In 1970, it was clear that John Martin's investment into Bukowski was paying off, so why not double down on his investment? Martin suggested that a novel would be easier to sell than a collection of poems and would attempt to push Bukowski in that direction, but there was just one problem. Between being a parent and full-time employee at the post office, where would Bukowski find the time to write this future masterpiece? Poems were easy to write, but a book would require a brand new level of commitment that he might not be ready for. John Martin would offer Bukowski $100 a month to quit his job at the post office and be a full-time writer, which even by 1970 standards, $100 wasn't a lot of money. But Bukowski lived a frugal life. His time was always being spent in his low-rent apartment, at work, or at the track, and when he drank, it was always the cheapest red wine he could get his hands on. Living that life for that long ended up paying huge dividends. Bukowski would reveal that John Martin, that he had $90,000 in life savings, which made the decision much easier. After working out the budget, it was settled. Bukowski would quit his job at the post office, and one month later, he'd submit his first novel, appropriately titled Post Office, dedicated to nobody. On
2: Blue Jean Day, everybody in town was supposed to wear blue jeans or get thrown in the lake. I put on my only suit and necktie. And slowly, like Billy the Kid with all eyes on me, I walked slowly through the town, looking in windows, stopping for cigars. I broke that town in half like a wooden match. Later, I met the town doctor in the street. I liked him. He was always high on drugs. I was not a drug man, but in case I had to hide from myself for a few days, I knew I could get anything I wanted from him. He did it. He was now a professional
0: writer. It took him over 30 years, but at 51 years old with a whopping $100 a month paycheck in his pocket, it was done. The goal would be accomplished. Bukowski was an alcoholic with a clear attitude problem, but he always fulfilled his obligations. With around $90,000 in savings, he could have easily made this decision years ago, but he didn't. What was it about John Martin's $100 a month that turned Bukowski into a believer in himself? I think that 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 was just enough. Budget-wise, where he's like, all right, I can pull this off. But with $90,000 savings, he could have lived the next 10 years without the post office. No,
3: I I know, but I I don't know if he believed that. (laughs) Here's the thing. Guys like Bukowski that are, like, drinking and... Gamblers, right? They know if they don't have that stability, they're going off the fucking rails, right? They know that. All right. All right. The reason I go to this stupid job is because I don't have to drink for eight hours and I don't spend all my money on the racetrack. See what I'm saying so those pockets of, I don't have responsibility keeps him kind of in line. And that's why he set up his way that way, not having any responsibility. Now. Yeah. He's got a deadline for a writer, but for him doing it on the side all the time, it was just something that, you know, he was doing while working. He figured he can probably do both. I think the $100 was just like fine. You know, it's probably breaking him even for his post office job. So why not do it? But in essence, the like the extreme free fall of him is going to, Is always on the brink, pretty much at this point, because he doesn't have that day-to-day job. He doesn't. He has less responsibility now than he did his entire life, really, with that money. And keep in mind, like you mentioned, he dedicated this to nobody. Meaning, there's always a dedication. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. This is for my lover. This is for someone you helped me get to this amazing thing.
4: But I think it was his way of saying, like, "Fuck you! I did this all by myself." Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: And that's always what Bogoski
5: was (laughs) about. His mindset. But didn't you feel kind of odd, like casting your fate with this guy who's this hard-drinking kind
6: of wild man? No, because that was all overridden by the fact of who he really was, not the distorted part of him, but what, what he really stood for and, 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 and what made him important. I mean, I, the first time I read him I said, my God, this is today's Whitman. This is the man of the street writing for the people in the street. And when you get an opportunity whether you're a banker or a, or a hold-up man, you go for it. And there was Bukowski, and I thought, if this guy will commit his future work to me, that'll start me off. I said to him at the end of 1969, I know you're a poet, and that's what I'm planning to publish, and that's why I'm starting Black Sparrow Press, to publish your poetry. But if you ever could write a novel, that would be really great because novels sell a lot better than books of poetry but never thinking that he could or would so he started work for me one hundred dollars a month on january second nineteen seventy and he called me around the twenty-fifth of january and said in kind of a low-key way come and pick it up i said well pick up what he said my novel he said to write a novel and i said how how could you write a novel in three or four weeks and he said "Fear."
0: the 70s were in a sense bukowski's heyday in 1975 bukowski would write his second game-changing novel factotum to critical acclaim he was doing poetry readings before but after the success of post office and factotum he was now being sought after by fans all over the country and world and getting flown to other cities just to do poetry readings bukowski's poetry readings were the stuff of legend because it gave his fans the opportunity to watch him get inebriated in person and if you were lucky he'd get belligerent and insult or threaten the audience and There is evidence of this behavior on multiple recordings. I
2: got into bed, opened the bottle, worked the pillow into a hard knot behind my back, took a deep breath, and sat in the dark looking out of the window. It was the first time I had been alone for five days. I was a man who thrived on solitude. Without it, I was like another man without food or water. Each day without solitude weakened me. I took no pride in my solitude. But I was dependent on it. The darkness of the room was like sunlight to me. He
0: was also receiving hundreds of dollars in royalties thanks to his book sales from Black Sparrow Press and other publishers and he even managed to sell the screen rights of his book post office for $2,500 along with erections, ejaculations, exhibitions, and general tales of ordinary madness for $2,000. Both would never be made.
1: Now if I start reading this poem and I hear this man's voice rising above the sound of my phone, I'm going to go over to him and kick his living ass right out of this thing. physically. I'm going to kick his ass right out of this goddamn hall.
0: And with his new underground fame, all of a sudden the women didn't notice Bukowski's scars as easily as before, and he took full advantage. The women would all come from different backgrounds. There was Linda King, who was a sculptor and poet. She had a tempestuous relationship with Bukowski for nearly five years during the early 70s, and from what I've read, this relationship was the most volatile out of all of Bukowski's girlfriends. She and he got together after King asked Bukowski if she could make a sculpture of his head, to which he agreed. Their relationship was on and off for years, and whenever they fell out, Bukowski would return the sculpted head back to Linda. The turbulence of their affair could sometimes spill over into violence with Bukowski. Bukowski breaking her nose on one occasion. After an argument over his infidelity, King threw his typewriter and books out into the street. The relationship left such a dent in Linda that in 2014, she'd write a book about her and Bukowski's relationship called Loving and Hating Charles Bukowski.
1: At the end of our relationship, when Bukowski and I were were fighting the most, I came in and I stole his his books one night. I'd been drinking quite a bit, and I stole his books, and I can't... And he caught me doing it and he came and says, I don't think I deserve this, you've got to give my books back. And so I brought all his books back, a whole stack of them, and I threw them into his house through those windows. I said, and here's for this woman, and here's for that woman, and here's for that woman. And I broke about 20 windows with his books as I threw them back through his house. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> It was a good time that night. <laughs> and that was one of the last times we were together,
0: you know. Other women included Joanna Boll, who was the ex-girlfriend of rock drummer Levon Helm. According to her, sleeping with Bukowski made her so nauseous, she threw up afterwards. <laughs> Pamela <Ow>. Miller... <laughs> fuck (laughs) Pamela Miller who Bukowski referred to as Cupcakes the waitress party animal and pill addict would disappear for days at a time and ultimately left him for a dental student Cupcakes would also write her own book about her and Bukowski's relationship titled Charles Bukowski's Scarlet which was the name he used for her in his writings I'm glad when they arrive and I'm glad when they leave I'm
1: glad when I hear their heels approaching my door and I'm glad when those heels walk away I'm glad to fuck I'm glad to care, and I'm glad when it's over. And since it's always either starting or finishing, I'm glad most of the time. And the cats walk up and down, and the earth spins around the sun, and the phone rings. This is Scarlet. Who? Scarlet. Okay, get it on over. And I hang up thinking, maybe this is it. Go in, take a quick shit, shave, bathe, dress, Dump the sacks and cartons of empty bottles. Sit down to the sound of heels approaching. More an army approaching than victory. It's scarlet. And in my kitchen, the faucet keeps dripping. Needs a washer. I'll take care of it later.
0: Amber O'Neill, who was also a poet and fan of Bukowski. Bukowski was less than kind when describing her in his writings. But she ended up getting the last laugh when she wrote her own book about the relationship she shared with Bukowski called Blowing My Hero. I didn't read that one. I don't see that quite making the uh, New York Times bestseller list. I might have to buy the rights to that one so I can make <laughs> that movie. The proof of Bukowski being a misogynist and an abusive drunk couldn't be made more obvious in so many of his poems and books. But his misogyny also inspired books from the people he was with, not condoning any of the acts he was guilty of, but it appears like most of the women he was spending time with were young, drunk, or on drugs, and it always seemed like they were coming to him for answers on life. Do you believe these women were convinced that Bukowski had all the answers based off his literary genius? And how difficult is it for anyone in an abusive relationship to come to terms that this person is not at all who you thought they were?
3: I think that Charles Bukowski knew these women would not even touch him if he wasn't some sort of famous author and poet. And he used them because he never was bought into that. They actually really loved him. A girl said she would sleep with him and throw up and then sleep with him again.
4: And then vomit. And then
3: vomit again. Like, just think about that. Okay, okay. So it's only happening. I guarantee you the first time she threw up after sleeping with him, he's like, I am not going to shower every time I do something with this girl. He probably just kept antagonizing that. And he was getting material. For his book, as we probably know on this show, but that's what he's doing. He's using these people to be like, you know what? Let's have this chaos and let's tell this reality, you know. But he never really bought in that these people would even be with him if it wasn't for his fame.
4: So, do you think that they were using him because he was famous and he was, you know, this underground? I
3: think, if someone likes you for the idea and not the person, you oh well, really yeah, are... exactly.
4: Like they they were more in love with the chaos and the yeah. the idea of like maybe changing him whereas he's using them to like you know give me more for my art.
0: Yeah. They're they're judging him based on what they're reading. They're thinking that the guy that wrote this poem and in some cases Bukowski's poems were beautiful. They're thinking that the guy who wrote these words that touched their soul, this is the guy 24/7. And I'm like no no no. That's only 5% of them. There's a whole another 95%. Even 5%- <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Right. Let's say let's say that's 1% of yeah. them. There's a whole another 99% out there that's going to drive you crazy. That's the isolated
3: artist, which is an aversion that people even see. That's only something he gets to a page.
1: All of them have come to see me, and they try to change me. They want to show me the happy life they want to. You see, I didn't ask them to come back. They're trying to save me. They're interested in the evilness in my writing, if I can use that term, or the difference... And that's what attracts them. The minute, the moment they meet me, they try to change me into them, which is not evil, interesting or anything at all. So I resent that and I revolt to it and then we get an unhappiness. But I don't come to them, they come to me. In
0: 1976, Rolling Stone would give Bukowski a major profile, bringing new heights to his popularity. With Bukowski now in demand, he was getting flown all over the world to do live poetry readings. It was now a new norm that Bukowski wanted no part of, but the money was too good to deny. He'd record several live recordings, with his last one being in 1980. It was also the year where he'd meet another vital component to the last decade of his life when he would meet Linda Lee Bale, a health food restaurant owner, rock and roll groupie, aspiring actress, heiress to a small Philadelphia mainline fortune, and devotee to Mahar Baba, a major spiritual figure of the 20th century with a following in the hundreds of thousands. The two started off as friends where he would call her and talk about all the women he was sleeping with at the time. Bukowski would say these women he was sleeping with were all for research for his new novel, simply titled women, that would get published in 1978. Linda said in an interview that she kind of just waited for all the other women to be out of the picture, and once they were, Linda and Charles became a couple.
6: While reading your book, Women, one could get the impression that uh, for you, a woman
1: is nothing more than a behind and a pair of tits. Oh, come on. You read it and that's all you got? You didn't even get the parts where I, I cried in bed because... Tears came to my face because I I invited two women to have Thanksgiving with me and I didn't know which one to go to. I mean, no, there are many moments in there where I looked like a complete asshole and I felt like one. No, no, I, I was just, I just wasn't jumping into bed and fucking and jumping out of bed, I'm sorry. It would be nice for me to say that and pretend I'm the tough right. guy, but I'm not that tough. But uh, in your stories, love is always a synonym for sexual intercourse. Where do you That's get not the, too romantic. Where do you get it? this crap, baby? Love is a dog from hell. That's all. It has mm. its own agonies. It brings its own agonies with it. But I mean, I don't know where you get your concepts from, man. You're really
0: fucked up. In 1980, Bukowski and Linda would move from the East Hollywood area, where he had lived for most of his life, to the harborside community of San Pedro in the southernmost district of the city of Los Angeles. They were eventually married by a spiritual teacher in 1985. Within two years of meeting Linda, Bukowski left the slums of Hollywood behind to share a house in the burbs with someone who dedicates her life to spirituality and healthy living. After 50 years of choosing bleak surroundings, what does Bukowski choosing to live a quiet life in the burbs mean at this point in his career.
3: Well, I think when you get a woman to write a novel called Blowing My Hero, you need to change up the game, right? Do you? <laughs> I don't know. I think you're doing
0: the right thing. <laughs> That's just, I'm, I'm not, this, I'm
3: still struggling with that.
4: I think this means it's growth for him, yes, right? Yes, I
3: think this is growth. I think he's, he's. Uh, I agree with you. I think he's taken on the role of like, all right, I am a famous writer. I used all these women. I wrote these novels. They wrote their novels, right? And now I have to really take this seriously and I, and I do think that he's going into this new environment and into this new area because he's going to write a novel that he's going to be super proud of. I really think he's like, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to have this different spiritual mindset and I'm going to really change my life. Every one of his novels are semi-autobiographical in some way. Every single one is like, write what you know to an extent. And after I think after Women, he had to do something that I, I think would put him on the map for reals.
7: And during that time i met him at a poetry reading in la at the troubadour but he was still doing all this research with women so i had no intention of becoming a girlfriend or anything so he just sort of evolved a friendship and i was somebody he'd always call on the phone and he'd talk to me about all these other women and then he just got more and more involved and the women uh, came in and out and went through his life and finally he uh, His research was complete, (laughs) (laughs) and I ended up there. They were all gone. We got rid of them. In
0: 1979, director Barbé Schroeder would get in contact with Bukowski and would pay him $20,000 to write a screenplay, a first for Bukowski, with the title Rats of Thirst. Now, to get that movie made, it would require even more time and money that Barbet just did not have. But Barbé was intent on getting Bukowski on the silver screen. Instead of making the movie Bukowski wrote, Barbet would shift focus to something that would be cheaper to make, a Bukowski documentary. A camera crew would follow Bukowski. Bukowski and his wife around for several months, spending hours interviewing him or trying to catch him in his element. The camera recorded plenty of ups, but it also captured the downs. One of those downs would be the camera catching firsthand Bukowski's misogynistic ways when it recorded Bukowski physically attacking Linda and verbally abusing her. A moment that Linda swears was the moment that taught her to never allow that type of treatment ever again. The scene would be included in the documentary that would eventually be called the Bukowski tapes.
7: Night after night going out what good are you I'm gonna get my Jewish lawyer out of you out on you and he's gonna get you out of this house get out and I mean it was just mortifying and he the camera was rolling I mean they had a perfect thing going there this is pretty exciting why are you so offended by me doing something else because
1: I live with a woman or she lives with me she doesn't live with other people
7: I do live with other people. And I'm going to for the rest of my life.
1: I know I'm going to turn you over to them, don't no, you see?
6: No, 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 Oh, shit,
1: you fucking oh.
6: You think you walk
1: out on me every fucking night? You fucking whore. You bitch. Who do you think I am? Just, I'm going to do this, live with other people.
8: I do fucking shit.
7: That's when I got my guts. I never took it again, never. The next time he tried that, I said, you son of a bitch. You can you can scream your ass off at, at the clouds in the sky and at yourself, but you're not going to do it to me. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'd just get up, walk up the stairs, and I'd listen to him ranting and raving down here at nobody Sometimes it'd go on for about 30 minutes and just just screaming out.
0: Hearing tales of spousal abuse is pretty tough to stomach. But what was it about being abused in front of the camera crew that made Linda put her foot down once and for all? Man,
3: that there is no veil anymore. And if anybody's seen the the Barbara Schroeder or Bukowski tapes, they are available on YouTube and they're like three hours long. There's a lot of them to do that. But th- it's like you're in the house with someone watching someone getting physically beat it's the most uncomfortable thing and everybody has pride to a point where when something like that's put out in the world there's an embarrassment Mm -hmm. and you know that like all right if we see some somebody's physical action or we hear it on audio like some really really abusive yucky thing and we revisit that because you can have these bad memories but you were drunk or you were this or you were that and it's not as real but when you have it right there in front of you
4: evidence you yeah.
3: cannot ignore it. And I think that that's what she did. She just, she's like, wow, this is now. now I participated in something in the world to make me look like someone that is, is pretty much victimized yeah. and voluntarily, yeah, voluntarily be victimized because this guy is a good writer. And, yeah. um, you know, we're not going to say Bukowski was a good person to women on this show no.
4: but i think you know going back to like she's an heiress and everything that embarrassment she's like i'm not gonna let this happen
3: mm-hmm.
4: i what do you think happened
0: with bukowski after he saw the video of him doing that
3: oh he was probably didn't care and proud of it you know i think he was probably like all right well you wanted reality you want to follow me around barbe you want to bring me into hollywood this is me and the, the you also got to take in mind the twenty thousand investment is for him to write his first screenplay, correct? Barbe Schroeder said that he did that yeah. and because maybe he wasn't getting that screenplay, he's like, you know what? let me just follow this character around and make a documentary So Barbe Schroeder's got two angles right now to tell the story
0: of Charles Bukowski. I almost think that Barbe Schroeder is looking at him the same way that these women from the book women were looking at him like, oh, this guy's got all the answers. Mm-hmm. let's follow this uh, watch- around and then when you look at these tapes, you're like, (laughs) what's so special about this?
3: I think he's a fascinating character. And I think some of the viewpoints when he's sober or just a little drunk are, are cynical every single time, but just you can see it's like he sees things in a different light than, than, almost any of us you
0: are right and, and he like, owns it it's a genuine despair I'll give you this when it, you're, you're right but when it's two and a half hours of that I'm like oh my god yeah. I can't mm-hmm. watch the, it. it is me, hopeless yeah let me go let me watch let me watch this in like 10 minute chunks because my god sitting through all that I'm gonna have a belt around my neck yeah. at the end of the night if you film somebody on that level you fall in love with them like Barbie
3: Schroeder was falling in love with that person I'll be like wow this is magical and it, it, it kind of was but yes I understand the length time and all that stuff
1: There's a sense of human privacy, uh, I believe that everybody should have. And if they come in with three heads on, that's their business. If I come in with four heads on, that's my business. you just take a glance and go back and say, well, I have French fries and onions, you know, that's it. It's what I call style, style is very important. A sense of decency. If we have nothing else left amongst our carnivorous, gluttonous, anti-human, anti-life ways, we should have a minor sense of style left in all the rubbish. We should realize, well, we're all dead, we're all fucked up, but at least give us a glance and settle with our indifferences and order our meals and leave each other alone it's a graceful sense of style. that's all why stare why if you stare you're trying to defeat and say i am better than you are
0: it's important to note that bukowski used the name of henry chinovsky as the alias behind his autobiographies in 1982 bukowski would finish his fourth novel ham on rye a story about his childhood Heman Rai is regarded by many as Bukowski's best work, but unlike his other novels, Women, Factotum, and Post Office, where he was right in the middle of the research, this was different. Heman Rai required him to go back a long time and recall certain events that he's been away from for several decades. Some of the audio clips that we've used on these last two episodes point out how Bukowski wasn't as honest as he tries to play off. Whenever he'd get the chance, he'd embellish on his real-life stories just to make the story more interesting, or to at least paint himself in a better light. You know, just like all the writers he wrote about hating. Hamon Rye painted a bleak picture of his youth, but how much of his written misery do you feel was genuine, and how much was manufactured for show? I think a lot of Charles Bukowski, or any...
3: um person with an addiction i think i think you're going 60 40 60 for show 60 selling because he's got to sell it to himself every day to believe this lifestyle is good you know and then i think 40 percent's reality i think that the like i said i, I I've, I've said it before where i feel like we all live in hope and despair that's how we walk every day it's like we're, we either have a, it's like a ping pong bong going back and forth like hope despair hope despair that's where we walk and i think that if Charles Bukowski was as honest as he couldn't be, it would be despair and it would just make him look super, super despicable. So he had to play that victim role and be like, and I rose. And that was kind of it. He had the quote unquote Jesus role, you know, for himself in his own way, especially with Ham on Rye. So I don't feel like, and he says it's semi-autobiographical and he said that about all his books for a reason. Cause he know he fabricated and left out quite a few details that would probably, uh, I think, uh, make him a, a more despicable character in that way.
0: And I got to tell you, you read Ham on Rye, he's not a good guy in that book. Mm-mm. He's not a good guy at all. And it's, it, you're what you're reading this book and it's, a brilliant book. It's a great book. I enjoy the book, but my God, when the pro- when the protagonist is also the antagonist, it's like God, is there any redeeming quality yeah. to him?
3: The antihero wasn't a thing. Charles Bukowski was an antihero and he took that role on strong in his novels in his book and his personality. He's like, I am the antihero. He wasn't a villain, but man, he was always on the cusp.
5: He saw what success and money and fame had done to other writers of his generation and of true history, uh, so he knew, he knew there was a danger there, and he knew that there was a danger for a writer to, you know, to lose his soul or to become a clown. He would never go on a talk show, for example, which would have increased the sale of his book enormously. The irony is that he did go on a talk show in France. And then he got so drunk that uh, it created a scandal. This very cool man who was running this talk show ended up having him evicted. by the
0: mid 80s thanks to his huge backlog of poems that never went to print charles bukowski and black sparrow press were now publishing four or five poetry books a year the royalties he received from europe alone were bringing in around tens of thousands and that's not counting his album sales the monthly allowance from black sparrow press which was now up to 500 a month nor the sales from his recent works there was only one challenge left to check off the list the silver screen okay No problem. Poetry is generally very dull,
1: very pretensive. Uh, Those who say the poet is a very private and precious person, I don't agree with. Generally he's just a dumb fiddling asshole writing insecure lines that don't come through, believing he's immortal, waiting for his immortality which never arrives because the poor fucker just can't write most poets poets, coets hoets carrots can't even write a simple line Like the
0: dog walked down the street. Bukowski already sold several of the screen rights to his books, but it wouldn't be till the mid-80s when any of it would be recognized. His short stories Tales of Ordinary Madness and Crazy Love would receive the silver screen treatment in Italy and Belgium respectfully. But it wasn't until 1987 when his own screenplay Rats to Thirst that he wrote in 1979 would finally be made into a movie. But there would be a change to the title. The movie would be called Barfly, and it would be a modern take on the relationship he shared with his first love, Jane Cooney.
9: I had an idea that I'd be discovered after my death.
8: You look well on the way. You might beat out deadline.
9: Hey, what's with this deadline crap, huh?
8: Don't you remember? You've sent us dozens of stories. You can't be that out of it.
9: Uh, I don't think so.
8: Why did you send your stuff to us?
9: Well, I like the title of the mag. It boggles my scrotum. Why don't you stop drinking? Anybody can be a drunk. (sighs) Anybody can be a non-drunk. It takes a special talent to be a drunk. It takes endurance is more important than
0: truth. Now, getting Barfly made was no easy task. The production company, the Canon Group Company, allegedly had restrictive bank covenants which limited the number of films it could make during periods of financial distress, which it was experiencing at the time. Because of the expensive forward commitments to other stars on other films, Canon originally decided to exclude Barfly from its production slate because Canon would have otherwise been forced to abandon another film in its place which had substantially greater monetary penalties to its star for non-production the film was ultimately produced because barbe schroeder allegedly appeared at the canon offices one day with a battery-powered portable saw and threatened to cut off his finger unless canon reconsidered its decision and agreed to make the film stating that he schroeder was represented by the law firm of black and decker and would be forced to cut off his finger to allegedly show to the world that canon was cutting off a piece of him by abandoning the film Canon, to its credit, allegedly decided that violating its banking covenants was the lesser evil compared to denying birth to Barfly.
9: I can't stand people. I hate them. Oh, yeah? You hate them? No. Uh, but I seem to feel better when they're not around. Hey, Barkeep. Uh Scotch and waters. I'm gonna ask you the same damn thing. People are always asking me. Like, like what do you do? I drink. It's it That's what. I'm
0: broke. Fred Roos and Francis Ford Coppola from American Zeo Troop Studios were certainly important components in ultimately shaping the business plan going forward, but the decision was irrevocably made and committed to the day that Schroeder allegedly showed up in the offices with both a portable battery powered saw and the will and determination to use it exactly as he said he would if the decision to abort the film was not rescinded that morning. To make matters even more complicated, Bukowski really wanted his friend actor Sean Penn to play him in the movie, a role Penn would have agreed to if Bukowski would have let Penn's friend Dennis Hopper direct Barfly. The problem was Bukowski detested Dennis Hopper, whom he despised as a gold chain wearing Hollywood phony. Eventually, Bukowski got his choice of director in Barbe Schroeder, his original choice, and the role of Henry Chanowski would be played by Mickey Rourke, whose performance would receive criticism at first from Bukowski, who eventually grew to appreciate the performance. He even made a cameo as a bar patron. What a stretch. During the showing of the movie, it would dawn on Bukowski that the apartment scenes featuring Mickey Rourke and Faye Dunaway were actually filmed in the same apartments Bukowski and Jane Cooney lived all those years ago. Well,
7: how could Mickey Rourke portray Hank? It's an impossibility. Why didn't they get some old Duffer? They wanted Mickey Rourke to be uh, Humphrey Bogart and pick up girls in the bar. Hank wasn't like that, really. I remember there were some really beautiful girls in there, which weren't all the kind of girls that Hank went after. He
5: went after people who were slightly damaged.
1: He really overdid it, you know, the hair hanging down. I don't think the kid's ever been on Skid Row, you know. When the guy walks in, he says, oh, I've been missed. I should run for mayor. Didn't get it right. Because I'd walk in, I'd say, oh, I've been missed. I guess I should run from there. So you don't brag it. Mm. It's low key all the time. He had it all kind of exaggerated, uh, untrue, a little bit show off about it. So uh, no. It was kind of messed up.
0: Working with the movie studio execs and producers was crushing for Bukowski. So much, in fact, that Barfly would be the last screenplay he'd ever attempt. The whole process left little to be desired, but he can't say nothing came of it. When it was Bukowski who used that negative experience as fuel behind his next novel, titled Hollywood, released in 1989.
2: His whole house was filled with trash, piles of it everywhere. When you wanted to sit on the couch, you'd have to push a mound of trash to one side. And his walls were pasted over with mottos and odd newspaper headlines all the stuff was way off key like the last words of the earth's last maniac in the cellar of his house were thousands of books stacked up and they were swollen and wet and rotted with the damp he had read them all and come away quite well all he needed to survive was a shoestring and he'd better not get in a chess game with him or a struggle to the death he was a marvel I do suppose in those days I had a fair amount of self-pity, and he made me aware of that. Mainly those times and those hours were entertaining. I fed off of Big John Gull, when there was nothing else around.
0: He was a writer, too. And later I got lucky with the word, and he didn't. You just knew the whole movie-making experience would leave a bitter taste in Bukowski's mouth. Do you think it was from being surrounded by the fake and phony facades Hollywood was known for, the lack of solitude in general, or was it because now he wasn't in control of where his story would ultimately end up?
3: Real quick, okay? Everybody. Canon Films. Golan and Globus. This was the shit show. There's documentaries. They're a Rise to a fin episode by themselves, what they did. And how they used to pay for their films is that they would put everything, go over budget, and then all these films would just sit in limbo and nobody would know what to do. The film that fucked Barfly up? Masters of the Universe, okay? And Superman 4 had to bail that out for Barfly to be made. This is how those guys ran their business. And they are notorious for all those horrible 80s movies. Uh, horrible but lovable 80s movies. Masters of the Universe. Cobra. <laughs> Stallone. Oh, you want to die, pig? All the Death Wish films. Death Wish 2, Death oh, Wish 3. Yeah. The, Charles Bronson, Chuck Norris. They're all canon. That's what they are. Bloodsport, canon. That's that group. Think about Barfly. Okay? The Barbe Schroeder art film... In the canon universe. Yeah. It makes no sense. The guys that did American Ninja part one yeah. and two and avenging force, the guys that are pushing Michael Dudikoff, Hey, let's do this. Fucking <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> Let's do this. Like art straight today.
0: up. Yeah. Straight up douchebag machismo yeah. action flicks. And then you're going to go over here to Artland. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. You're going to go over here to Scarfville. They are the most notorious.
3: Like I said, they're notorious, notorious, uh, for being just wild cards. And this kind of should happen at the, the canon office all the time. Um, so just bring that out there. He didn't deal with Hollywood, he dealt with Canon Film Group. You know what I'm saying? So, so it goes a, back to
4: like the, the reason why he can't have control. And that's like driving him nuts, right?
3: Absolutely. But that film group is insane. Um and, and So they, anybody
4: wouldn't have a huge problem with them.
3: Everybody did. Yeah. They owed everybody money. Oof. And and then like I said, they would they would pump budgets out and stuff like that. I mean, the stories for the Canon Film Group, like I said, there's documentaries out there. You guys can go see it. But um, the fact that Barfly was on this film, that's why you can't find it today on DVD. You have to find like a shock cinema DVD that's like $40 to even try to see this movie. You have to go to a local library to find a tape from 1987 because all these films are just thrown out there and you can't find. Nobody has the rights to them. Um, But... That being said about Canon, yeah, the bad taste in his mouth was because Barbe Schroeder and them, they went to a group that really this was not in their wheelhouse. But when they teamed up with Francis Ford Coppola, um, who did produce a lot of things like these art house films in the 80s, who was a huge fan of of someone like Charles Bukowski, I think the the wrong got righted. Now you're looking at a a seven-year gap from 79 to 86 when the film was getting filmed, and you're also looking at a casting change where Sean Penn to Mickey Rourke, to me, not a big deal. And Mickey Rourke is one of those actors, like when you go back, uh, Sean Penn obviously has that repertoire that he maintained it. But in the 80s, Mickey Rourke was one of those really big time handsome actor and he gained all that weight for the part he gained mm-hmm. weight he uglied up i know bakowski one time I, I heard him say like oh he was too handsome he's like okay but sean penn would have been yeah, not better. handsome yeah. like what are you talking about so but that's the, the Bukowski did he would say things like that but when you see him in that scene in barfly sitting at the bar smiling you can tell the director's telling him charles stop and he didn't give a fuck it was pretty great they have to go around him on the scene as yeah. mickey Rourke walks over and he he introduces himself to Faye Dunaway's character, who is his love interest. That's their first moment that they meet in the film. And uh, like I said, I think that it adds to the legacy of Bukowski. And I think that, unfortunately, it wasn't a box office hit. It cost them a lot of money and there wasn't a lot of money behind it, but anybody that's seen that film cult wise, it's it's definitely, it, it belongs in the Bukowski universe for sure.
1: I found out that Hollywood is more crooked, dumber, crueler, stupider. And all the books I've read about it, they didn't go deeply enough into how it lacks art and soul and heart, how it's really a piece of crap. There are too many hands directing. there're too many fingers in the pot and they're all kind of ignorant about what they're doing and they're greedy and they're vicious. They don't get much of a
0: movie. Following the release of Barfly, Bukowski would start to develop an array of health issues. In 1988, Bukowski would undergo treatment for skin cancer. The same year, he'd also experience fatigue. In 1989, he'd be diagnosed with tuberculosis. In 1992, he'd receive treatment for cataracts. And in 1993, he'd spend 63 days in the hospital receiving chemotherapy treatments, where he finally gave up booze and smoking for good. During the chemo treatments, Bukowski and his wife Linda would attend the Transcendental Meditation Center in Malibu two or three times a week for several weeks. Bukowski is now sober, but to make it even more unbelievable, Bukowski is now spiritual. What do you think Bukowski learned about himself in the twilight of his life?
3: Ah, man. I think everybody looks back and they just want more time at a certain point, and then they have to face the fact that hey, the way you lived isn't going to give you more time and I think that there's just a I don't think there's peace there. I think there's got to be some some sort of. I don't think Charles Bukowski regretted a thing he did, so I don't want to say regret, but I just think there's some sort of. Uh, he's
4: searching for peace because mm-hmm. he's never really had it, so might as well. If you're nearing the end of your life, might as well try to find it somehow.
3: You don't think about time. We don't. We're like at our age. We don't yeah. think about time, but there's a point in your life where you're thinking about
0: shit. Well, when you're told. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, when you're told that, hey, look, you know, you thought you were going to live to this day long and now you're going to live to this long. I'm sure a lot of a lot of thoughts flooded into his head. Yeah. And again, um, that's the one thing with Bukowski. It's like you, you're kind of hoping for some redemption. This is probably the closest we're going to get to a redemptive Bukowski, mm-hmm. you know, and he did still produce art when he was sober. He'd still produce, which that one thing that he thought he needed his whole life. Turns out he didn't help
5: dedicated the bad writing. That just is the Bukowski story right there. Not that he wrote badly, but that he took chances. That was an older man's novel, and yet it's so filled with a younger man's inventiveness and suppleness. Hollywood got it L.A., let's say, from this way, and Pope got it L.A. this way, right? And Ham and Rye got an L.A. this way. Think about it. And then the short stories came on L.A. that way. And then the poems rushed down the freeway this way. You know, it was that ruined landscape of Los Angeles that he wrote about. Pulp, of course, is a pure fantasy. It isn't the real life Bukowski. So a fantasy, though, is the life of the mind. So it was something that was always on his mind. The man was dying. he was nearing the end of his life, and he writes about Lady Death. That's how he dealt with his dying make art out of it.
0: Charles Bukowski would pass away on March 9th, 1994, almost one month before his last novel, Pulp. Would be published. Many of his poetry books and short stories would be released posthumously, with newly discovered poems still making their way to print to this very day, as well as recordings of his live poetry readings. At his gravesite, the phrase, don't try, would be forever carved into his tombstone, an important phrase that Bukowski would reference countless times throughout his career, especially when discussing art. What do you think Bukowski meant with his parting words to the world?
3: For me one of the in my time frame one of the first books i read of him was the last night of the earth poems that was like not my first introduction to Bukowski, but it was like in the in the in the same realm you know um play the piano drunk like a percussion instrument until the fingers begin to bleed a bit was also one that i read at the same time and the difference in the human being that wrote those two novels was huge to me. So the growth of him as a person in that decade, you know, as a poet was 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 vast, you know. The last night of earth poems like when you're talking about oh there's some beauty in Bukowski, it's all there. Like in, you know, I don't know if at that time when he wrote that he knew he was going to pass away or if his life was changing, but so but I do feel like that book felt like parting words. I feel like there's a timing in our body and our mind when we know, hey, we we might have pushed this a little far i feel like i feel like that that not or that collection of poems was like hey i've been doing the racetrack for a long time i've been drinking for a long time and it's not getting tired for me but it's getting hard you know and i'm seeing more beauty than I thought I did before and I think those are parting words for him to be like you know what I could have lived this life from start to finish again and probably turned the beauty on a little bit earlier in my life and 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 got the dirty realism out of it you mm-hmm. know I could have taken that out and I could have had a different life of spirituality and beauty but you know what I'm
0: I'm 70 now art and 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 literature meant a lot to him and when you have so many people come into you coming to you for the answers you know just saying like, look, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why it worked for me. I don't know what talent is. I just kept doing. Yeah. And if you're, if you're just going to keep doing, and if it's not a detriment to your life, keep doing it, keep doing it. And I think that that was the one thing with Bukowski. It wasn't a matter of believe in yourself. It wasn't like, I believe, I believe. It's just like, uh when he got home he poured himself a glass of red wine and he just breathed he just and breathe and breathe for him was writing on that typewriter and
3: i mean those words are what his legacy will be his actions all those things are out the window because he left behind something that was genuine and real for everybody mm-hmm. if, they, if they if they go down that rabbit hole you can you can say that hey that was a life that was a life
0: and a lot of people emulate genuine and real And I think Charles Bukowski is your prime example of what happens when you keep it real, when you keep it genuine. You end up miserable.
8: If you're going to try, go all the way. Otherwise, don't even start. If you're going to try, go all the way. This could mean losing girlfriends, wives, relatives, jobs, and maybe your mind. So, all the way. It could mean not eating for three or four days. It could mean freezing on a park bench. It could mean jail. It could mean derision, mockery, isolation. Isolation is the gift. All the others are a test of your endurance, of how much you really want to do it and you'll do it despite rejection and the worst odds and it will be better than anything else you can imagine if you're going to try go all the way there is no other feeling like that you will be alone with the gods and the nights will flame with fire do it do it do it do it Life straight to perfect laughter. It's the only good fight there is. <laughs>
0: Brandon Hahn on Twitter and Instagram at Your Buddy Gooch, Sylvia Alvarado on Instagram and Twitter at It's the Sylvia, and Petter Spych and Rise to Offend for that matter on Twitter and Facebook at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. Make sure to listen every Monday to our other podcast, the Metal Sucks Podcast, available on all podcasting platforms. For comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you'd like us to cover, email us at Rise to offend at gmail.com. Discover the life and work of Charles Bukowski by listening to recordings of his live poetry readings, watching Barbe Schroeder's Barfly on DVD or VHS if you are lucky enough to find it, read his collections of poetry, and don't forget his novels like Post Office, Women, Ham on Rye, Factotum, and Pulp, available in digital download or wherever books and CDs are sold. Thank you so much for the five-star reviews on the old iTunes. If you love the show, that small and painless act of kindness helps the show grow and is all we can ask of you. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode and a brand new topic. My name is Brandon Hahn, RTO Podcast signing off. <laughs>